Episode 12, 12 Angry Men. The Four Legal English Podcast is now in session. On today's docket, we discuss the classic movie 12 Angry Men, starring Henry Fonda. This movie focuses on the 12 jurors who deliberate at the end of a murder trial in New York City. The question is, is there reasonable doubt? What happens when the jury retires to the jury room to deliberate? What do they consider before returning with a verdict? Welcome to the Four Legal English Podcast. This is the show for lawyers, law students, and other professionals from all over the world who want to improve both their legal English and legal knowledge. In this episode, we discuss different legal topics, such as law in the news, law in practice, legal writing, legal movies, and others. I am your host, Timothy Barrett. I'm a foreign practicing attorney from the United States and now a law professor in Tbilisi, Georgia. I've taught legal English as well as other subjects to over 1,000 students. Please check out the website, forlegalenglish.com. Four is in the number four, legalenglish.com. This is episode 12 of the Four Legal English podcast. On the docket today, we discuss the classic movie 12 Angry Men. This movie focuses on the 12 jurors who deliberate at the end of the murder trial. This is an ongoing series we'll have featuring some of the best legal movies. We will examine the law demonstrated in the movie and what can lawyers or law students learn from this movie, as well as the entertainment aspect of the film. This film is from 1957. The director is Sidney Lumet and has a star-filled ensemble cast. The leading star, of course, is Henry Fonda, who's juror number eight. But there are some other stars as well, E.G. Marshall, Lee J. Cobb, and Ed Begley, and some up-and-coming stars such as Jack Klugman. All the other actors are easily recognizable from other movies from, from this era. The writer was Reginald Rose, who originally wrote this for a TV special, then adapted it as a play, and then later adapted it for this 1957 movie. In 1997, they had a remake as a new movie. That version also had a very star-filled cast. It was a pretty good movie, but I don't think it fully compares to the 1957 original version. There was also a Broadway run as a play in the 2000s. And that Broadway show also had some big stars as well. The first thing we should start with is the cinematography of the film itself. The film is almost entirely the jury room. At the very beginning and at the very end, you're outside of the jury room. Uh, You also might see the the washroom, the, the bathroom in the middle of the movie. But the entire movie is pretty much the jury room. At the very beginning, you see the courtroom. You hear the judge droning on, giving the final jury instructions. We talked about jury instructions a few episodes ago, and I kind of described that for most lawyers or courtroom professionals, they've heard it so many times that it's very boring, and certainly to this judge, it sounded like it would be very, very boring to listen to. And then you see the jury stand up and go into the jury room. That's how the, the film starts. And then at the end, you see them leave the jury room. I read that this was actually a New York City jury room, courthouse in Center Street in Manhattan, but I'm not certain if that's true or or not. 
certainly kind of looks like one. I've, I've been in that courthouse many times, although I've never been in a jury room, but it seems consistent. But it's a very interesting filming technique that where the whole film takes place in that one room. And it does get kind of claustrophobic. You feel like the walls are kind of moving in on you. And it seems to get hotter and hotter uh, during the movie. Another trick that they use is the camera angles. At the very beginning, it starts high, kind of looking down on the jurors. But then as the film moves on, it becomes more and more eye level. And then towards the end, it's actually below eye level, looking up to the jurors. And kind of adds to that kind of claustrophobic or uh, tension building as the, the argument gets more heated and the discussion becomes more volatile. My thoughts? Overall, this is an excellent movie, both for the law aspects and for the entertainment. It's great acting. It's a wonderful ensemble cast. The cinematography in the one jury room is singular. It's excellent. And trying to understand how does a jury operate? What happens once they retire into that jury room? I think it's an an excellent expose of that. Of course, it's pretty obvious from the title that there are no women on the jury. This is 1957, or the film is from 1957. You know, in the United States, the first juries that had women on them were in Wyoming, and starting in 1870, I believe. Women served as jurors when it was when Wyoming was still a territory; it had not become a state yet. But for most of the country, it it would kind of go hand in hand with suffrage as they became eligible to vote. They would also be granted the right to be on a jury, but there would be kind of a delay with it in. New York, I believe in the 1920s, that it became legal for them to be on juries. I'm not certain if this aspect of the movie is, is accurate or not. You know, in the 1950s, would there be no, no woman on, on a jury or, or not? But of course, certainly today in the 21st century, you'd have to think you know, roughly half would be women. Formality. Another thing that's easy to notice is that all the jurors are in suits. I think there's one or two that don't have a tie, but they all have at least a button-down shirt and jacket. When they enter the jury room, some of them take off the jacket immediately. Some leave it on. Uh, then during the course of the film, you see them taking it off. It's obviously be getting hotter and hotter, that sort of thing. But when I was a prosecutor and had jury trials, it, I think it would be about the opposite. That is, maybe one or two might have a tie or might be wearing a suit, but the rest of the jury would not be wearing a suit. I think in the old days, it was very common that people would dress formally no matter where they went. If they went to a courthouse, whether they were going there for jury duty or as a witness or as a defendant or, or a claimant in a case, they would probably put on their, their best suit, their best clothes. End of the 20th and into the 21st century, I think American society is much more informal in general, and that, that carries over to the courtroom as well. And in fact, you can usually point out who the lawyers are because they're the ones that are wearing the suits. For lawyers, it's, it's not optional. They, they definitely have to wear a suit. Another aspect of formality is that some of the jurors, doesn't happen all the time, but some of them would stand up while they were speaking. And I don't know if this was just more of a, a cinematography technique that they used, but when I saw it, I saw that it was kind of natural for them to do. And I think that was just because back then people were more formal. If you're addressing a group of you know a dozen people, you might stand up, naturally give you a little bit more attention and pay attention to what you're saying. 
letting them know that you're going to speak. Even if during the deliberation, they can be informal. Of course, it's not like they're having a courtroom proceeding. It can certainly help the speaker give them a little bit more gravitas, a little bit more importance when they're speaking if they stand up. And going back to the cinematography, it's very interesting to watch how sometimes the, the camera shots are of one juror, sometimes it's of two jurors or maybe four jurors, and sometimes all the jurors, you know, looking down the table from one end or from the other end, but trying to get all the jurors in the shot. So again, it's a very entertaining, very interesting film to watch. Proper or improper jury inquiries. So I want to highlight two of the things that the jury spends some time discussing. I think one of them is, is probably proper, one is probably improper. Let's first talk about the knife. So this is a murder case, and the, the victim was killed by a knife, a switchblade. And while they're talking about that knife, they're looking at the knife. They're talking about how it, unique, how singular that knife was. One of the jurors pulls out a knife and very dramatically sticks it into the table, you know, right next to the, the murder weapon. And of course, it looks very similar, if not the, the same style. Although a very powerful moment in the movie, this would certainly be a, very improper for one of the jurors to kind of conduct their own investigation, to go to the crime scene or to go to the neighborhood, go to the, the pawn shops, the stores nearby to find out if they could find a knife that was similar or, or the same to the murder weapon. That would certainly be proper for the detectives, the police detectives to investigate, and, and certainly the defense attorney or detective uh, working for the defense team. But this is not something that we would want jurors to take part in. Because think about it, the prosecutor or the defense attorney have no opportunity to cross-examine the juror. Maybe there's something that they know that the jury doesn't know about this. So now that the jury is kind of putting extra weight onto what this one juror did, and it hasn't had the, the benefit of being cross-examined. On the other hand, let's look at the discussion about the elevated train, or the L-tracks. If it's not clear already, the, the L-train or the elevated train is a subway, a, a train that, instead of being underground, is actually you know, on the second or third floor, you know, elevated above the street. There are some neighborhoods in New York City that have elevated trains. There are some Chicago also has elevated trains, and you know some other cities do as well. When I lived in New York City, I moved to a, a new apartment. The first night in my new apartment, I couldn't sleep at all because after I moved in, I discovered that right next to my bedroom window was an elevated train. I, I didn't really notice that while I was looking at the apartment, but I certainly noticed it that first night trying to sleep. And I could not sleep at all that first night because in New York, the subways go all night long, you know, 24-7. I was just about to fall asleep and then it would wake me up again. And it was very loud. It would shake the whole apartment, shake my bedroom at least. Now, the second night, I lay down to go to sleep and I didn't notice the elevated train at all. It just took one night to kind of acclimate to it and then it was fine. But that first night, I did not get any sleep. But the jurors, as they're talking about the elevated train, they use their experience and knowledge of the elevated train to evaluate two witness statements, you know, the testimonies of two different witnesses. And of course, they all live around the elevated train. One of them says, oh, he had a job. He was working next to the elevated train, you know, just a couple of weeks ago. He described how loud it was and how it affected his work, that sort of thing. So they use that knowledge to kind of determine, could the neighbor hear if an elevated train was going by? 
And I think this would be a proper inquiry for the jury to consider, unlike the search for the, the knife. If you're enjoying today's episode, please subscribe. Give us five stars and a review. It would really help us out. You can go to our website, four as in the number four, legalenglish, no spaces or dashes, dot com. Four legalenglish.com. You can see our show notes and our blog articles and available courses. If you're looking to improve your legal English skills, check out our free course, Introduction to Legal English. This is a short course that's based on our elemental legal English courses, but we offer it for free. So if you're not sure if you want to take the full course, try out the free course. What could be better? Check it out. Go to our show notes page and there'll be a link. Just enter your name and email and you'll be registered into this free course, Introduction to Legal English. The second vote. So at the very beginning of deliberations, you see them take a, a vote, and of course there's only one not guilty, everyone else is, says guilty. But then they discuss it for a while, and then Henry Fonda, juror number eight, kind of makes a deal with the other jurors. If we vote by secret ballot, if it's still 11 for guilty, I'm the only one who's not guilty, then I will kind of give up, I will change my vote. That's the deal that he makes with the other jurors. I think this is probably realistic. You know, we never know quite what goes on in the jury room, but there is some bargaining, there's some negotiation. And a lot of times when there are some that are for guilty, some that are for not guilty, they might pick a lesser charge. They give a, what we call a compromised verdict. For instance, if the top charge is murder in the first degree, they return murder in the third degree or manslaughter, something like that. Sometimes this can be a, a huge difference, could be the difference between maybe a death penalty or a life imprisonment and maybe a five or 10 year prison sentence, or maybe it's a, a five or 10 or 15 year prison sentence and, and the lesser charge is actually a misdemeanor. So the maximum penalty is, is one year or less. So that would be a pretty big difference. But it was a very dramatic part of the movie when the juror number one, the for, foreman of the jury, goes through the ballots saying guilty, 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 and then not guilty. And like I said, I think this is pretty realistic. I can imagine a lot of real juries doing something like this. Shortly after that scene, we get a scene in the washroom. One of the jurors says to Henry Fonda, he says it sarcastically, but he says, oh, what a nice bunch of guys, meaning the 10 other jurors. And Fonda replies, quote, they're about the same as anyone else, unquote. And I think that's the design of the story and of the jury system itself that the 12 jurors should be representative of the population, both good and, and bad. And I think you can see that in this jury. You have uh, 12 different characters, different life experiences, different socioeconomic backgrounds. Some are older, some are younger, some are richer, some are poorer. And that is the jury system in a nutshell, you know, or that is the ideal behind the jury system that you get this uh, cross experience from different walks of life within that community within that population. The old man witness. So one of the eyewitnesses was an old man, and there's also an old man who's on the, on the jury, juror number nine. And he clearly observed the old man who was the witness. And he brings up that he thinks the old man might be wrong in his, in his statement, in his testimony, pointing out that for this witness, it was very important for him to be important, to come to court, 
to give this important testimony, even if he wasn't really sure what he saw, or maybe he misremembered what he saw. And he lays out some groundwork as, as to why that might have happened. It's very interesting because people do make terrible witnesses. If you haven't read about uh, witness mistakes, it's a very interesting area, you know, both psycho- psychologically as well as from the legal aspects. But if you don't know about it, you think, oh, there's, a, there's one witness or two witness, three witness. Obviously, it is, it is true. It must have happened. But there are lots of times that, that people made mistakes. People do make terrible witnesses. Another thing that the, the older juror says, quote, I know this man better than anyone else, unquote. And I, I think that that's true. It's common to think that when selecting a jury, often similar people are the harshest critics. For example, I've heard it explained many times that if you have a rape case, you do not want young women on the jury who might be critical of the victim. Instead, you want fathers who would think, what if that happened to my daughter? And one of the, the antagonists, one of the other jurors who is very hard for the, the guilty side, at some point says to the, the older juror, what do you know about it? And the room goes silent, all the other jurors kind of realizing that the old juror could have been talking about himself. You know, a lot of the description that he gave of the older witness might also apply to him, who today is in an important position. You know, he's on the jury. The other jurors are listening to him. He does get his say, kind of how he described the older witness. Hung jury. So starting maybe about halfway through the, the film, they start talking about a hung jury or a deadlocked jury. This is a jury that can't reach a decision. So it doesn't, in a criminal trial, it has to be unanimous. It has to be 12 jurors agree guilty or 12 jurors agree not guilty. If it's not, then it's a hung jury or a deadlocked jury. If that is the result, then the judge will order a a mistrial. Basically, this jury cannot come to a decision, so this was a mistrial. And usually that's mistrial without prejudice. The prosecution is free to ask for a new trial, and they just start the whole process again. Double jeopardy doesn't really apply because the jury didn't make a decision. Normally, when the jury can't reach a decision, they, they might write a note to the judge. The judge will bring them into the jury room, and we'll call it an Allen charge based on the case name Allen. Usually, there's a uh, pre-written jury instruction specifically for this, but the judge will tell the jury, you know, we are counting on you. You have to make a decision. Don't give up. You know, please open up your minds, listen to each other, and try to make a unanimous decision. You know, all, all those nice things. And then sends them back into the room, uh, hopefully to break the deadlock. And of course, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. They've only been deliberating one afternoon. And I don't think any judge would declare a mistrial after one afternoon. After a few days, maybe the whole week, and they haven't reached a decision then the judge might, might order a mistrial, but certainly not after one afternoon. Jury psychology. What do they think about in the jury room? It's very difficult to know. They can latch on to one piece of testimony or a single piece of evidence, and it may be crucial for them, where that same thing might be unimportant both to the prosecutor and the defense attorney. It's interesting to watch all... Twelve jurors saw the same trial, but they do remember some things differently. For instance, did the old man say run or not? They kind of have a dispute about that. But I think this is probably realistic. You know, some jurors are going to remember some things better. And perhaps 
there's strength in that. Some jurors notice certain things, some jurors remember other things better, and so the 12 of them are much stronger kind of together because of that than if it was just one or two people making the same decision. And again, if that's true, then that's an, a strong attribute of the jury system. And further than that, some jurors have unique knowledge or expertise. And you can see that with Jack Klugman. His character knew how to use a switchblade. And so he kind of explains it to the other jurors. So if you get a group of 12 different people, of course, some are going to have different knowledge, some different experiences. You have another juror, I think juror number seven, who's Jack Warden, changes his vote because he wants to leave early. He's looking forward to going to a baseball game or just wants to get out of there. I think that that's probably realistic. You have some jurors that do not want to be there, that, okay, this is what I think, but uh, I'll go the other way. If it means that we are done, I get to go home. And it's interesting, another juror who is an immigrant, we're not sure where he's from, but somewhere in Europe, I would imagine, and he gets very upset you know, because this juror is kind of shirking his duty and he has a lack of courage or guts to kind of stand by his conviction. And this, he says this even though Jack Warden changed his vote to match his own vote. So, you know, he, you'd think on the surface he would, be, he would be happy he switched the vote, but he didn't like that he did it, not because he believed in it, but because he just wanted to, to end the process to get out of there. And this was the same juror that earlier had spoken about the importance of being on jury, the importance of a jury in our legal system. That's very common in my experience that often immigrants appreciate things in the United States that people who grew up in the United States might not appreciate as much because they're kind of used to it. Another one of the jurors, played by Ed Begley, kind of goes on a, a bigoted rant about those people, talking about you can't trust those people, we know what those people are like, that sort of thing. And it's a very important part of the movie, or a very dramatic part anyway, where everyone kind of gets up from the table and turns his back on him. And slowly, he kind of realizes that he's all alone. We talked about another movie, Runaway Jury, previously, and I think they kind of paid homage to this in their jury deliberation scene. They had something very similar. Henry Fonda, a little bit later, has a good quote. Wherever you run into it, prejudice obscures the truth. Another juror, played by Lee Cobb, is estranged from his son, had some kind of disagreement with his son, so they haven't really talked, haven't spoken with each other. And because of that, at the end of the movie, it turns out that he has a very strong prejudice against sons. You know, he doesn't trust sons, thinks that they're backstabbers, that sort of thing. So for him, it was very easy to believe that the son murdered his father because he kind of felt like, his son has stabbed him, maybe not literally, but certainly metaphorically. It's kind of interesting to think during the voir dire process, we've talked about that in some other episodes, would the lawyers be able to figure out this bias through the voir dire process? And, you know, I think prejudice against son is probably not a, a normal prejudice that, that you would definitely make sure that you would ask questions about. Recently, there was another big, big trial in New York City against the uh, sexual abusers, sexual traffickers. And it turns out one of the jurors, after the case was over, it came out that they were sexually abused and they didn't disclose that. Obviously, if you have a sexual abuse type of case, you would ask questions to the jury panel before they are selected for the jury. You know, have you been sexually abused or someone you love been sexually abused, something like that, because it might have a very strong prejudice because of that. But it was very clear that, that this character, played by Lee Cobb, was certainly biased against the defendant, against the son. What can we as lawyers learn from this movie? One of the big things is jury psychology. What happens in the jury room? It's kind of like a black box. As a lawyer, if you try cases in front of a jury, whether they're criminal or civil, 
you know what happened in the courtroom, but then the jury goes into that jury room, and you know what happens when they come back. You know the verdict, but what happens in between? What happens in that jury room? So sometimes you you will get an opportunity to get some insights. You talk to a juror who's willing to to speak, but it's still kind of a black box. As a, as a lawyer, you kind of wonder what goes on in that room. So it's kind of interesting to watch how, how it works behind the scenes inside that jury room. As a film, how entertaining is this? I would say very entertaining. It's excellent cinematography. The acting was, was top-notch. This was a great movie to watch. I wasn't bored or distracted wanting to look at something else. It was very interesting to watch you know, from the beginning to the end. And it was very fast-moving. Cannot recommend this movie enough. I hope that you will watch it and get something out of it. If you do watch it, go to our show notes page and write a comment. Did you like the movie? Was it as good as I as I portrayed it? Or what did you think of the movie? And did you think they came to the right decision or not? Should they have said guilty or not guilty? What do you think? And that's something that I really didn't talk about in the, the review today. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe to our podcast. Give us five stars and a quick review. Go to our website for as in the number four, Legal English, no spaces or dashes, dot com, for legalenglish.com. You can check out our blog articles and our available courses and the show notes for this episode. And again, comment. It's a great way to practice and improve your legal English skills. For Legal English podcast is adjourned. Don't miss the next docket call. <laughs>